Hello, and welcome to the first ever Inklecast, snippets of conversation about interactive fiction and game design. In this episode, we're going to be talking about player expectations, consequences, and games that encourage players to rebel against their stated objectives. I'm John Ingold. I'm Joe Humphrey. And I'm Tom Cale. something I've talked to you both about before is tempering player expectations right at the start of the game. So, for example, in Sorcery 1, uh, one of the first decisions you're allowed to make is whether you walk off a cliff or not. And the game teaches you that, no, you can't walk off a cliff because it will kill you. But then you don't do stupid things in the future. That's interesting. In the wider world of interactive fiction, generally, they live by the point-and-click adventure creed of, of you just don't kill people. And if right. you do kill people, you don't kill them in a permanent way. Right. And Sorcery kind of relishes the fact that it will ha- quite happily screw you up quite seriously. I guess it's just because it's, it's, and it's just the, an ancestor of the game book, which was all about death and all mm. about turning the pages back and just trying to find your way through this maze. And I think, but I think it's twisted in sorcery to be they're partly a player, but they're partly a dungeon master. Like they, they do, mm. we do slightly want them to put their protagonist into uncomfortable and and dangerous mm. situations because it's more fun. Mm. So to do that, we have to make sure we don't punish that too much. Like if we took a point of maximum stamina away every time you died and rewound, everyone would play it really safely. But because rewinding has no consequence at all, that's quite an encouragement to when you see a gold coin in the middle of a blazing inferno, you go, all right, I'll stick my hand in that and see what happens. Mm. And that's, mm. that's important. And when that works out, when you, when you survive that encounter and come through it, the player feels great because mm. they did something ridiculous and they had a mm. nice outcome and it's... We definitely don't want the player to act like they're actually there, exactly. We want them to mm. act like they're, they're the annoying elder brother of the protagonist going, go on, a day, a day. Yeah, because it's, it's, almost, it's almost like, in some ways, it reminds me of, of a kind of sandbox experience where you just want to mess around and have fun. And, mm. like, and so what? You're messing around with a bespoke, completely non-procedural narrative, but it doesn't matter as long as you have that rewind mechanic. But even if you don't have the rewind mechanic, like in 80 days... Well, 80 days playthroughs are quite short. And they also don't kill you. So you just know that you can just mess about, have a laugh, and at worst, you'll lose a couple of days from your time or have a different story. And if you want to play seriously, you can do that as well. So I guess if you want to play play GTA like a total, proper, serious gangster, you can do. Mm. I don't know if anybody does, but you you can do it if you Mm. want. I guess the weird thing about that, though, is does that mean that this design of games, this, this rough kind of structure of games we've got, are they inherently flippant and a bit facetious? Like, is it impossible for us to make a game about a really serious topic because we're always trying to encourage the player to do something stupid, to have a bit of a laugh? I don't think that's true. I think games like... I mean, Until Dawn kind of wants you to have a bit of a laugh as well in that you can kind of make all your characters be really horrible to each other but watching them die horribly is kind of part of the fun. Mm. So there's a yeah, sort of comedy. There's that slasher film. Yeah, absolutely. And that's in Sorcery too. But then you look at something like Sun the Sea, where actually if you try to take risks too much, or you like, you have to learn what sort of risks the game allows you to take without dying. And if you die, you'll lose 10 hours of progress. Mm. So it's incredibly punishing. There's no undo button. Like If you walk off a cliff mm. in Sun the Sea, mm. that's it. You're screwed. So it's really taking itself seriously at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really just whether you have a rewind button and... But I guess Sun and Sea is a bit fairer in terms of its mechanics. Like, it hides a lot less um, than we do. Yeah, I think that's once probably worked, true. At least once you've worked it out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it kind of gives you an indication of what you need to do a choice and how 
big the result is. Like, there's um, a really nice, like, ice cavern bit where you have to go for about 20 different rooms, and each time you go for a room, you sacrifice one of your core stats. Um, so getting all the way to the end, it feels like you're kind of killing your character slowly. Yeah. But because you're forced to take so many steps, and yes, I'd like to do this, yes, I'd still like to do this, yes, okay, please, let me do this, you kind of feel that you own the choice. You feel very responsible for it. It's constantly asking you if you want to, you know, mm. don't do this because it's a bad idea. Which is the classic model that you use in sorcery all the time as well, the kind mm. of... There's a person over here who is obviously a thief. Do you mm. go near them? Okay, you take a step closer. Do you still go near them? Yeah. And that and it ramps up the tension and does make it. But it's very different in the context mm. where you can rewind and where you can't. Yeah, it's true. I think in answer to your question of whether this kind of format inherently makes you want to just mess about, I think it's just about um, players exploring the boundaries of what they can do in any situation and whether that's a choice-based game or or not players are always just trying to find the limits of what can happen whether it's an interactive like a parser-based interactive fiction game where they test its boundaries by just writing swear words in and just see mm. see whether it accepts that uh, and in the same way like um they don't really care whether it's going to kill their character, but if there is this option to, you know, walk into a blazing inferno, they kind of want to just see what happens when they try it. Yeah, partly um, just to find out what, yeah. what kind of game it is. However, I still think that that's just a pati- one particular way of playing, and it may be a popular way of playing. But I think there's also a more... I think a lot of the time when people really get into these games, they they start role-playing and they start really trying to get into the head of the character and especially for small choices I think people like to choose the things that resonate with their own personality Mm. which is less about exploring the boundaries and more about just trying to be in the shoes of their character. And really have an adventure. It's weird because when you hear people describing their experience of these days you hear basically two things and the first one is oh, I completely nailed the game on the first time round. It was, I didn't see the point of it. And then I replayed it and I decided to just ignore the bet and wander around randomly and start exploring and doing all the stupid things. And then the other group of people say, oh, I explored and then I started to hone my choices down to try and create this this perfect playthrough. And those are completely different ways, styles of playing. Like, mm. do, you, do you see exploring as your reward for having mm. definitely understood the game? Or mm. do, you, do you see exploring as a way of working out how to yeah. understand the game? Yeah. And I like that it supports both. Yeah, I and I, right. I like. I think. I think that's kind of one of the holy grails of game design and of media in general is making um, media or experiences that can that can be enjoyed by different types of people. Whether in a game that's context really that's people like that's really John true. is an, an advancer, I'm an explorer. Um, in terms of our personality, that's how we like to act in mm. games. What are you, Tom? I don't really know, because I quite like exploring. I think we're a trickster. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but like, we'd probably be remiss if we didn't mention that a lot of people actually don't like that element of 80 days. And it, I think we'd probably all argue that that was the sort of player that never did just try playing for the story's sake. These are normally people that can't quite get over, maybe. The, the, the desire to min-max it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. which is, to be fair, that's how games have kind of trained us to play. You know, a lot of people would say, that's just what games are. So there's definitely a sort of certain breed of player that would say, oh no, that's lewd and narrative dissonance, because you're asking the player to do two different things and they conflict each other. 
I yeah. don't necessarily know if I, no, yeah, I yeah, probably yeah. do just yeah. disagree with It's interesting that in the context of Age of Death, because it's ludonarrative dissonance in that you tell the player they have to get around the world as quickly as possible and then invite the player to, to mess about and fail to do that. <laughs> but then you just say, well, who says that's what the narrative was? Yeah. I mean, the narrative yeah, might yeah, be actually, about a French valet who's sick of his stupid master and just wants to see the world. Yeah, I think it's less like, dissonant than, you know, the classic Tomb Raider moment of, like... Just starting to shoot people yeah. up after. And I think yeah. partly just because we tell you less what to do. And mm. Sorry, it, it's more your... Pro- if you have I a different experience, it is, it's it kind is, of your problem. I think it is Passepartout's character as well, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. He just gets yeah. a bit yeah. sidetracked by things because he's French. Yeah, well, <laughs> if, if you look at his background, like he's been... <laughs> He's been an acrobat, and he's been in the resistance, and he's done all these different things, like, because he is uh, yeah. a scatterbrained... Mm. That, that's what he is. Yeah, exactly. So how do you think True. the game might have changed if we'd literally framed it as, you are a bored valet with a silly English master, go nuts. Like, if we'd deliberately made it more of a comedy. So we told the player, yeah, but Fogg wants to go across the world, but you just, you know, you've got loads of money, go nuts. I think the the two biggest problems is without an explicit goal, people don't have something to rebel against. Right. So I think when they did rebel, it wouldn't have felt as personal. I think one thing where 80 Days really succeeds, and I think Sorcery as well, is that both games are telling you, like a school teacher, this is what you've got to do, this is how you get through it. Mm-hmm. And every moment that you duck about, every moment that you skip, skip class or, or do something funny... Mm-hmm you were kind of fighting the game and the game gave you a little sure. smile and a wink and said, that's okay. Yeah, I, also think, I also think that most sandbox games benefit from having some fallback mechanic where if, you're, if you just finish what you're doing and you go, okay, what should I do next? It's yeah. nice to have something you can just fall back to and keep you being That tells you what you actually should game. be doing next. I say most because actually Minecraft copes very well without that. Although if I think about the moment I stopped playing Minecraft, it's probably just, I had a small moment of what do I do next, and I didn't come up with something, I quit the game and never came back. Mm. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if it had just did have this kind of very subtle underlying, here's something that you could be doing next, it probably would have held me for longer. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I still think the idea of rebelling is really interesting. Like, if you look at... I mean, Stanley Parable is kind of an exercise in here's a sandbox, but it's not really. Can you rebel? Like, you can jump out of a window at one point instead of choosing some doors. And the game totally anticipates that. And it's kind of a pastiche of the ability to do that at all. Mm. Um, And then there's, say, Papers, Please, which is, again, kind of... You know, here's the game you're meant to be doing, but you're also given the option to rebel. But it's arguable that in that game, Pope kind of wanted the player to rebel. Like, Mm. you are Mm. sort of... Like, your moral compass kind of asks you to do that. Whereas, like, this fictional version of 80 Days that we were chatting about a minute ago, again, I think it it gives you the objective, which is to rebel. So you need to ask the player to rebel, but without actually asking, without actually making a conscious (laughs) of it. Well, it's like, any time you find an exploit in a game, it's kind of really... Oh, we exploit to the system, it's quite satisfying. So Mm. there's various things in Sorcery 2 where you can... You can pick up an item that's really expensive, but then because it's got its time loop built into it, you can then sell that item for even more money and then use the proceeds to go and buy the item again. So you end up with the item plus a profit. Mm. And then you can do that more than once. And like that kind of little loop, even though it's totally authored, but it feels like an exploit. It feels like something you shouldn't have been able to do that you've gotten away with. And that sense of getting away with it is quite... Nice. I mean, I've, mm. I've said loads of times I want to do a con game, and I think one of the reasons I want to do a con game is to try and capture that sense of here are some rules which look completely. That's very interesting. You can find you... a loophole. Yeah, I was just starting to wonder whether you could design a con game which 
overtly tells you one thing, but really the game mechanic is to do something completely different. That would be really, that is the that's entire the point of the con game. That's really <laughs> cool, actually. That's really cool. Like, so the whole tutorial is just... Look after the money in the bank. Yeah. You know, you're and a bank manager. <laughs> and the, the pullback and reveal moment is the fact that the player is yeah. is doing something that the game's yeah. kind of let them do, but yeah. is pretending that they're not doing. Right. That's, exactly. that's really cool. Right, we'll have to edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's gold. <laughs> but then that's kind of what your game... Um, what is it called? The the make it good, make it good. Exactly. That's yeah, kind of what I think, that one was I th- about. I think it is exactly what that one was about. Though that was kind of. The difficulty with, with Make It Good um, is that when I was designing it, I had one specific idea, like the particular plot about a policeman who mm. does this thing. And right. I d- I've never worked out how to generalise that, to say, mm. well, what other games could you make where the player is in, where they've got mm. such a clear directive that they never question it, mm. and they've got so clear ways of subverting it mm. that they never question those either, because mm. that's a perfect storm. Mm. I, maybe I should just make, make it good too, make it better. In, in another way, <laughs> I mean... Yeah, well, it's tempting, isn't it? It's a pretty boring world, but... That's part of the appeal, isn't it? Yeah. It seems boring, and then you realise you can invest billions in, yeah. like, I don't know, Cambodian drugs. You've got to remember that most investment bankers just do what they're told, though. They're incredibly clever people, but then they get really powerful bosses who just tell them what spreadsheets to fill in, so they do it, because yeah. they're losers. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> going back to Stanley Parable and actually Portal as well, those are both games that have kind of demonstrated that technique of... Um, setting up the game as being one thing and then the game being entirely about right. finding the track doors. Mm. Yeah, that's um, true. Though Portal is pretty linear. Well, no, it's sure it it's linear, yeah. and, but narratively it does. Yeah, 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 it? yeah, yeah. But it's yeah, kind yeah. of impressive that that still feels so much better. It feels, it feels super exciting in Portal, that moment yeah, yeah. where you go b- backstage. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. Even though you realise it's completely set up, it feels like... I love I love that feeling of breaking beyond the bounds of what your what you thought the box was that you were playing in. <laughs> <laughs>